Welcome everyone to another episode of The Scuttlebutt. Before we dive into the episode, we are very proud to welcome and celebrate our first sponsor. D&D Metal Recycling and Auto Salvage began as a small hauling and used auto parts operation in the Pittsburgh area in the late 1970s and has grown into a full service metal recycling company with two locations, Lawrenceville and Tarentum. These are state-of-the-art scrapyards with deep roots in the community and a strong commitment to the service of their customers. D&D accepts all types of metal, both ferrous and non-ferrous, that may be generated by industrial manufacturing, construction and demolition, small commercial entities, as well as individual customers. They have a wide variety of material handling equipment and are capable of managing any job in a timely and efficient manner. You can contact them for quotes and availability at dndautosalvage.com. That's D and D autosalvage.com. Thank you, D&D, for supporting this podcast. And now, on with the show. Prior to 65, we were still living in the Dick Clark American Bandstand era. Everybody was dancing at 4 o'clock after school, drinking a Coke and, and uh, doing the twist. Vietnam started to create an anger in this country. And uh, with that, we, I think the country was looking to protest, to identify with something. Welcome everyone to The Scuttlebutt. I'm your host, Sean Hall, the Director of Programming with the Veterans Breakfast Club, whose mission is to create communities of listening around veterans and their stories to connect, educate, heal, and inspire. Uh, if you are joining us brand new, we hope that you will like, share, subscribe, ring the bell on YouTube, or leave us a comment. Uh, we always like hearing from our audience, or you can also email me at Sean, that's S-H-A-U-N, at veteransbreakfastclub.org. I am always excited by every episode, but for a particular reason, I'm very excited for this episode. Uh, we are going to be talking war music uh, with some incredible guests, uh, both music from the Vietnam era and uh, the music from the post-9-11 era. Um, we have some incredible guests with us today to talk about these two uh, genres, I don't know what you would call it, two eras of music. Um, I am not a music savant, uh, but we have some uh, a music historian joining us for the first time. Would you call yourself that, Kevin? Uh, a music historian, perhaps maybe enthusiast. Uh, probably easier to just call me a dork for music. <laughs> so. Well, you have an incredible knowledge of, of music and its history. Uh, so we're, we're excited to have you uh, part of the Scuttlebutt and to sort of impart your knowledge to us. Um, but Kevin and I are both not veterans. Um, but joining us for this conversation will be Don Nemchek, a Vietnam era veteran. Don, if you'd like to introduce yourself and welcome to the Scuttlebutt. Certainly. Thank you, Sean. Thanks for the opportunity today. Uh, I'm a U.S. Navy veteran, era 1970 to 1974. Served in Southeast Asia for 36 months. Uh, various uh, naval communication stations and operations in Southeast Asia, uh, finalizing with uh, a duty on board the USS Constellation, an attack aircraft carrier. Uh, noteworthy that we flew the first air ops uh, in Vietnam in 1965, and we flew the last air ops in 1973 over Laos and North Vietnam while they were signing the Paris Peace Accord, etc. And uh, just the uh, time uh, spent overseas uh, in that era, uh, to me, uh, has stayed with me. I'm still in touch with a lot of my buddies that I served with, and uh, I hope I can contribute to today's program. Oh, you already have. I mean, Don sent me tons of emails prior to us recording this of, of, of different links to songs on YouTube. 
I should say this to our audience now is that if you are listening to this on audio or if you found us on our website, uh, you can go and scroll down and you're going to see a bunch of different links to the music that we will be referencing on today's episode. Uh, also on YouTube, if you're watching there, you'll see the links down in the description. And finally, also uh, welcoming back to the Scuttlebutt is co-host Ryan All. Ryan, uh, I always have you give us something new since you've been with us so long. What is your favorite band and why? Ooh, that's a tough one. Uh, my name's Ryan. I am an Army veteran. Um, I enlisted shortly after 9-11. I served in the infantry and logistics in the Army and deployed to Iraq a few times. Uh, favorite band? I mean, I can give you like a top five. Like, real quick. Like Kevin um, won't the, judge you. Go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Jimi Hendrix, Johnny Cash, Sublime, Justin Timberlake, and maybe, you know, Bruno Mars is working his way up there. I, I would not have guessed Justin Timberlake. <laughs> <laughs> Rock and roll, dudes. <laughs> There's no, no judgment. I, um, but for, so for, no judgment. for real, uh, definitely, uh, yeah, Johnny Cash, Jimi Hendrix, and Sublime, super influential on me. Uh, and I do, I just, I have a guilty pleasure for pop music and Justin Timberlake. I mean, how can you not love the guy? Yeah, he's, he's adorable and so talented. <laughs> well, we usually go through different segments here on the scuttle, but but I, I I think with the amount of things that we need to talk about in in terms of the music during these two eras, we're going to go straight into it. And Don, I'm going to start us off uh, with probably a question that I think most people think uh, who know the music from that era is why do we not hear music like we did back then? That's an interesting question. Why don't we hear music like we did back then? I think it's about two or three fold. I think that a lot of this has to do with, we wanted to get that war past us. The country was very divided for the Vietnam War. We were more united uh, for the post 9-11 Afghanistan, Iraq. Um, I think we wanted to get it behind us. Now there are several tunes that were mainstream that uh, most people can associate with the Vietnam era. Ballad of the Green Berets, some other songs such as that. But you have to remember, Vietnam War started around 1965, and as advisors would come in and uh, be in, in country, if you will, they didn't have the armed forces network. As soon as that buildup happened, when we had over 500,000 uh, GIs in Vietnam in and around 1968, all of a sudden those 500,000 men brought the music of their neighborhood of their culture with them from hard rock of the uh jimmy hendrix variety okay to the country music of waylon jennings and merle haggard to the soul sounds of james brown and the temptations those were three separate factions now i think the music today is uh, just more uh we'll just say unified there's no identity to some of the music uh that we had back in the past Kevin, I'm gonna I'm gonna pop to you for a reaction to that, like, uh, and also to answer it in, in your own way. Why do you think uh, music has changed so much from the Vietnam era? Why don't we hear that same type of music anymore? Well, uh, first off, I'd like to say to Don, thank you very much for your service, and also to Ryan. Uh, as a non-veteran, it's um, it's a bit humiliating sometimes talking about anything to do around the subject of service and war as a as a non-veteran myself. So I really appreciate this opportunity. As to why I think we don't see the kind of um, what was labeled in the 60s uh, protest music, this would be 
anything from like the folk and and uh, kind of uh, blues storytelling music to everything to like Buffalo Springfield and you know a lot of the songs that were very anti-war pro piece. Uh, I think we don't see it for a lot of reasons. One, artistically speaking, bands don't like to they like to try to bring something new to the table. I think I don't think they like to repeat themselves in terms of history. You know um, when the late 60s, the mid, the beginning of the 60s essentially was still the 50s, you know. I really think with the assassination of JFK moving into the mid 60s with the civil rights movement and then the assassinations of Martin Luther King and Bobby Kennedy, the 60s became the 60s in like 64 when the Beatles came onto the television. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and then in the, certainly in the summer of love, 67, there was this generational shift where this younger generation born in the 40s was starting to take over. And for the first time in their lives, they were getting to say aloud things that they maybe weren't allowed to say at the dinner table. Now they got a guitar in their hand and an amplifier behind them and a microphone in front of them looking at a camera. So they're gonna say something that, you know, they might think might piss the right person off. That's, there's always that youth rebellion uh, side to it. But they also felt that they felt this need to express themselves and say something that wasn't being said. So whether they agreed with or against the war, they were going to use that opportunity as a musician to say that. And I think that was the first time in America's history where a a generation was handed mass media and freedom and they were allowed to just express themselves. So you had, you know, you had everybody from Johnny Cash to blues singers to jazz musicians and to rock and rollers all protesting this idea of being involved in a war that they might not have believed in or that they might have supported. Um, And I just think that part of the reason we haven't seen that was one thing Don said too, that after 9-11, the country was very unified as one. It was a similar thing to Pearl Harbor. We were attacked, so why would anyone be against the war? Um, I think some anti-war sentiment began later on, and we can discuss that. But for the most part, I just think it's that generation was the first chance to express themselves in a, in a really loud and free way, you know. If I could interject, I think one of the most seminal songs of that protest era was Four Dead in Ohio, after a song by Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young after the Kent State murder. Uh, that inflamed the country. I, I, was, I have a friend of mine who... Uh, was on the bus going to basic training out of Pittsburgh on that day, and the students at the University of Pittsburgh were trying to overturn that bus. Uh, college campuses were being taken over. That was almost their theme song, okay? It was a very haunting song. And uh, prior to that, you had guys like Daniel Och, O-C-H-S, going, I'm not yeah. going to fight anymore. And that song actually got underplayed because that was almost the theme song of the uh, uh the student uh, protest in 1968 at the Democratic Convention. I'm not going to march anymore. And he did a lot. So those were all this, and I agree with Kevin. Uh, all of a sudden, the post-World uh, War II halcyon days of America was starting to become behind us. And then here from the mid to late 60s, all of a sudden, you had three factions. You had protests. You had the African-American community fighting for their civil rights, identifying with their own music, if you will. You had the country Western people identifying with love it or leave it, God bless America and my truck. And then you had the soulful sounds of the uh, uh, Motown coming in, which was huge back in the day. And then all of a sudden here comes the British invasion with the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and others who were playing off of all that. So you had a bunch of, of a mix coming in. 
coming into it. And I know one of the movies, uh, Good Morning Vietnam with Robin Williams, which is a true story about a guy from uh, a disc jockey from West Mifflin here in Pennsylvania, Adrian Kalmhauer, which is a very well done movie. And I can still see those guys sitting on their uh, vehicles, playing their AM, FM radios that listen to some soul sounds where maybe a month ago they were playing Monte Bonnie. Okay. So given all that, that change started to, to grow. And as that change grew, people started identifying and, be, and created factions amongst units, okay, of, uh, of what type of music you were listening to and what you kind of identified. Did this music, did this shift begin prior to Vietnam or did Vietnam ignite this level of music? I think it ignited that music because it was, again, prior to 65, we were still living in the Dick Clark American Bandstand era. Okay? Yeah. Everybody was dancing at four o'clock after school, drinking a Coke and and uh, doing the twist okay after yeah. that vietnam started to create an anger in this country and uh, with that we i think the country was looking to protest to identify with something and here comes uh, woodstock in 69 okay which was uh, all that okay for some people and uh, the, the the music that was there still stays with a lot of people from the opening sounds of richie havens to uh, joe cocker to country joe doing uh, you know one, two, three, four, what are we fighting for? All of a yeah. sudden, it, this group, there was a half a million people there. That half a million spawned a lot more. So when guys, particularly you have to remember, there was a draft. You're 18 and a half, 19 years old. For example, my cousin uh, graduated high school June of 65, enlisted, was in country November 66. He was killed uh, February 66. Okay, November 65, he was killed February 66. That's quick time frame. Okay, that's when things really started to heat up, not only in Southeast Asia, but in this country. People started to realize, wait a minute, what are we doing over here? And they're not getting political heavily into this, staying on focus with the music. But all of a sudden, the music became that was our that was our signature. Okay, if you were a, a hippie, you were listening to Moonshadow by Cat Stevens. If you were quote unquote a juicer or a redneck, you were listening to Merle Haggard saying, "I'm an Okie from Muskogee." Okay, and then the soulful sounds of James Brown saying, shout out loud, I'm black and I'm proud. And uh, that was a, a lot of uh, identity going out that way. Did this create a lot of uh, division uh, on, on base uh, with the troops that might be listening to all of these different types of music at the same time? Yes, it did, uh, Sean. And I'll, I'll just I'll do an anecdote. I was stationed at a communication station uh, on Guam. And uh, we had you know, kind of Kwanzaa had barracks. It was just the plywood separated by the racks and uh, you, you live with the guys that you live with. Well, back then, uh, you know, stereo, uh, stereo equipment, very high-end stereo equipment was very inexpensive at the PX. So everybody's buying Sanyo reel-to-reel speakers and eight <laughs> decks and everything else and playing their own type of music. Just using those three types of factions, you got the guys listening to Merle Haggard on one corner, you got the black uh, African-American fellows listening to James Brown on his side, and you got the hippies living over on this side. Everybody wants you to turn down your music. Well, you're 19, you're stupid, okay? Fueled with alcohol sometimes or just bravado and testosterone. All of a sudden, you're going to Fifth City, okay? You wanted to assert yourself. One would say, well, wasn't there any discipline? That was the military. Yes, there was discipline, but we were off duty, okay? So the NCOs and the officers were living where they lived and they didn't, I don't say they didn't care what we did, but they particularly didn't watch over us. So it was up to each other to police each other's uh, uh, living arrangements and try to find some happy medium there. Oftentimes that happy medium was found, but oftentimes it went the other way too, because you can go sideways real fast at two o'clock in the morning. 
Ryan, uh, I want to bring you into the conversation. And, and did music have this same effect when you were deployed? What type of music was was being listened to uh, at that time? So I think that kind of um, goes back to what we were, we were talking about. I think Don and Kevin both had fantastic points. Um, and the the kind of contrast here to to why there there is no real strong you know sound of this of this war this war has been going on a long time you know in Iraq and Afghanistan and, and other places which we've spoken about but you know there's a lot of reasons why there there isn't you know protest music or or things like that and I think that the you know the, the media and, and our country in general regardless of, of a independent of, of 9-11 which did you know very much unite the country we we saw this ability of the the military to kind of control the messaging better in, uh, in, in the Gulf War and then in the current war and to keep the, the, the public behind um, behind uh, the service members as they were, you know, out, out overseas fighting. Um, so you didn't see as much much protest music. And, and a few things that that do, you know, pop to mind is like uh, the. Um, you know, the, the negative effects you can have on, on your bottom line by kind of by, by protesting. I think the first thing that, that, that popped to mind, do you guys remember when the Dixie Chicks uh, said something about George Bush and they got a whole lot of backlash? They were on tour in Europe and the lead singer said that they were ashamed that George Bush was from Texas. That's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I think that the, that's another part of it is that like, we the kind of the idea of of the war support of the war and support of the troops being more being very intertwined um, and people kind of uh, not wanting to, to kind of step out of step out of uh, out of lockstep with with that approach. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, there, there's there's very like little music that really identifies, in my opinion, kind of like the global war on terror, right? I mean, you have kind of like. Um, you would hear people overseas playing like, you know, heavy metal music to kind of get amped up for missions or something like drowning, you know, pool or, or disturbed know, or disturbed and, and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, you'd hear the Toby Keith, uh, you know, um, uh, ballads about, um, you know, you know, why we were going to war and stuff like that. Well, you know, some very inspirational or, or, or motivational stuff and those sorts of things. Um, usually uh, the heavy metal stuff, very, you know, based around, you know, violence and, and doing and being ready to do violence and things like that. But yeah, you, you don't hear that sort of um, that same def- definitive sound uh, because there's not, there's not too much of a culture behind it of, of opposition to the conflict or anything like that. And I think that in a way that gets to like a, a deeper issue, um, which is, you know, a whole another conversation of like, life didn't change too much for people back in the United States during the global war on terrorism, right? There was no draft and there wasn't, there was no war rationing. And there was, there was very few people being affected directly by this war, which I think, mm-hmm. you know, didn't allow it to permeate uh, through culture and society enough to affect something like, like music, you know? And so you have these kind of one-offs uh, of, of support uh, or, you know, motivational or things like that. And I, I do remember coming back, uh, for my tour, I think it was uh, my first tour, and, and uh, I think I was going back in 05 and in Green Day, when September ends, that song had just come out. Mm-hmm. And um, the images, the music videos, because we still did music videos back then, right? We hardly do them anymore now. Uh, but we were all sitting in the day room and we were demobbing. We had been back in the United States maybe maybe six days, right? Demo- we're, demobbing. Can you define that real quick? Demobilizing. So okay. you're getting all your stuff back from in, from in country and, and doing all your paperwork and getting ready to be sent on your way. And um, we're all sitting in the day room in the barracks, you know, just 
waiting for the whatever the next thing we have to go do. Uh, and that music video came on and we all just sat there in silence and watched this and we just processed it. Um, and no, and what was surprising to me was nobody said anything. Nobody said anything in support. Nobody said anything uh, derogatory. Um, we just sat there and we watched it. And I think that the the uh, experience of what we had just done um, was still so raw at the time. And it had been a bit of a rough tour um, that we just it just kind of we it, we just kind of took it in and uh, just we all processed it in our own way. Mm-hmm. The, the images that were there of the, you know, of, of the violence and the songs. And we were kind of like all internally kind of processing the lyrics of what Green Day was saying. But yeah, I mean, I think that's probably the most one of the most specific like musical instances I remember of like the global war on terror. And when you hear that song now, does it take you back to that moment? It does. Yeah, it absolutely does. When I hear that song, I think about that day room in Fort Dix, New Jersey, uh, at the barracks, and and being in that room with a you know just full of guys in desert camo, uh, just staring at a television. You know, Don, is that the same uh, with any of the music? Is there a particular song that really takes you back to a particular moment in Vietnam? Uh, yes, there is, Sean. Actually, there's two songs. Uh, one by Grand Funk Railroad. I'm getting closer to my home. I was a sailor. Uh, almost every sailor that was uh, coming back from Vietnam waters heard that song back in the 70s, and it was very repetitive and kind of descriptive of, of getting closer to my home. And also being a sailor and uh, hearing the song Brandy, you're a fine girl, uh, what a good wife you would be. And it's a song about a sailor visiting, a, seeing a waitress in a certain port. And uh, many of us had girls in some of the ports, and uh, that song kind of is haunting, is, uh, is memorable to me as well. But, what a great song. Yeah, it, it's, it's a very good tune. And uh, I'll tell you what, it, what also hits me pretty good, too, is uh, leaving on a jet plane. Uh, you know, we, we, I left on jet planes, okay? I, I, I didn't take the ship over and back. But, uh, you know, you always wanted to see that person when you're coming back. I want, I'll see you when I come back again. And some of us didn't know if you were coming back again. Nobody knew. I mean, you could have served in any theater. Uh, anything could happen back in the day. And uh, those songs do touch home with me because I can remember kind of where I was at that point in time when I was hearing those songs or who I was with or or uh, how I was identifying myself back then and as a young man I was uh, 19 years old going on 20 and uh, coming from an inner city if you will I was somewhat worldly but still green at the gills and uh, it, it, the service time back then certainly uh, gave me uh, an awakening if you will and it stayed with me 50 years later. Sean, I have a question for you and Kevin. Um, so when you guys think about like the Vietnam War or the Vietnam conflict or the 60s, uh, what, what, what type of music and songs like pop into your head and why? Uh, I just real quick want to touch on a really great point that both you and, and Don brought up. Um, especially post 9-11, I don't, I think a lot of the reason why we don't see the same volume of, of anti-war protest music is that in the 60s, I think artists were not only attacking the idea of war, they were, I don't think very fairly attacking soldiers as well. Mm-hmm. Especially a lot of people remember that there was a draft. Um, at one point, the rush for troops was so desperate that these draftees unfortunately did not get very good training. My parents told me that when they first got together in 1970, they said at one point they were going to three or four funerals a month because 
there was this feeling at home that people were just going off and dying at, over what was a police action, which is now a war against communism. And it wasn't very popular amongst certain groups of people, certain neighborhoods of people. And I feel like that's why we saw such a volume of it back then. Whereas post 9-11, I feel a lot of the bands attacked the politicians who support war rather than attack the troops. Like they are very pro supporting the troops, loving the troops, going over and doing tours like the, the uh, I can't remember what, like when celebrities and musicians would go over and visit USO? camps. USO, thank you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you see more of that today. Like I've seen uh, a Pearl Jam concert where they were closing the uh they were closing the concert with the yellow leadbetter which and there's a line in that about your son coming home in a box or a bag it's a, it's a very supportive of someone coming back safely to them and eddie looked to his left and there was a guy in fatigues down on the front row to the, to his left and he crawled over the crowd and hugged the guy and gave him a bottle of wine and the whole crowd went nuts and i think that this generation, this, this our, our generation, roughly like born around the 70s, the 80s, and the 90s, we can have the idea of protesting a war, but still supporting the troops. Whereas in the 60s, troops were being spit on at airports and being yelled at by people who didn't quite understand the full implications of what that was going to lead to. That really fractured the country. And I think today the musicians go after the the politicians and the administrations that support it rather than the troops. So mm -hmm. I think that's the big difference. Um, is, there a, is there, before you move on to your next thought, is there a particular yeah. band that you think kind of leads that charge? In our generation? Yeah. I think REM through the eighties um, had some, some songs that were commenting on administrations. I think Pearl Jam definitely had one or two songs. Uh, they had, of course, a song Bush Leaguer that they would play at their concerts. Some nights they'd get booed. I mean, the, at Nassau show, they got booed almost off the stage, but they were you know, expressing that they loved the troops, but they did not support the Bush administration. Um, for me, though, it really started in the mid eighties uh, because you had guys like Billy Joel who they had, they, they'd never served, they didn't know what was going on, but their friends had gone and they sat him down and said, this is what happened, we want you to talk about it. And that's where Goodnight Saigon comes from. Um, and he basically just talked to his buddies and wrote down things that they had told him and that's how he created the song. You obviously had, the, I pr I'd probably say the most recognizable one was Springsteen's Born in the USA. Mm -hmm. It's a bit of a Rorschach test, that song, because it's the, the, yeah. the opening chords are very, it's in a major key and it's a very like it, it gets the blood flowing but then when you read the lyrics it's the exact opposite it was originally written as kind of like a country blues like song but he completely rewrote the song in the process and you know i think the reagan administration opened up their re-election campaign with that song and bruce's manager was like hey guys have you read the lyrics to that because <laughs> it's it's not very, it's, it, it's a song about a guy who went off and fought, but he came back and his buddies aren't, some of his buddies didn't come back and now his job's gone. And, and, but there are people are, it's, it, it's, it really is an interesting song to read lyrically, but listen to musically because the music kind of pulls you in one direction and the lyrics pull you in another direction. Mm. Yeah, that's, really, that's, that's a depth I hadn't really considered uh, in, in listening to some of the music is which way do I get pulled by the music and you know, how does that take me down memory lane and, and yeah. what do the lyrics make me think of? You know, what I, I really appreciate Kevin's comments on that about uh, Springsteen's Born in the USA. 
I can, um, I'll contrast that with Marvin Gaye, What's Going On. Yeah. The, the 1971, that, that album was seminal and just so impactful. And that song, when you hear it today, What's Going On, uh, when Smokey Robinson came in, they, they lived near each other up in uh, Detroit. So Smokey Robinson come in and was uh, visiting Marvin Gaye and Marvin Gaye was starting to compose those songs, that song and that album. And Marvin Gaye said, you know, this is being written by God. It's just coming through me. And even though those were very deep sentiments, uh, those lyrics of what's going on really told the tale of around 1970, 1971, because 60, you know, the John Wayne movie, Green Berets and the, uh, the uh, uh, pro-war, you have to remember there was this faction in this country, the Hawks who was in favor of the war and the Doves who were anti-war. They clashed, they clashed all the time. And all of a sudden yeah. when this music starts coming about and Marvin Gaye starts coming out with songs like, what's going on? People began to think more as opposed to just saying, America, love it or leave it, or America's dad, the troops are all baby killers and drug addicts. There was two strong factions there. Actually, I think Marvin Gaye's song started to, I'll say, well, not the word heal, but it started to put some, some, some identity to that. What's going on? And start, people, people started to think a lot more. And again, they drove uh, Johnson and uh, Nixon crazy. Uh, in Washington, D.C. with the protests. You know, the protests that we had last summer were, was something to be seen, but it, it did not mirror in comparison with the protests that were in the late 60s and early 70s. They, they were out in uh, Washington, D.C. Hey, hey, LBJ, how many babies you killed today? He heard this in the White House. And it yeah. caused him, obviously, to uh, uh, not choose to be reelected. That's a great point that you just made, this idea that music can make people think. And that's something that I don't feel happens so much nowadays. Like the music I listen to doesn't really make me think. It just like, ah, it makes me head bop or like, you know, tap on my steering wheel, but it doesn't really make me think nowadays. Um, well, Brian, Sean, I don't, I don't know what you're listening to, Sean, but I'm thinking all the time. I'm kidding. <laughs> well, I think usually I it's wanna... mbop. I just play mbop on on. Hey, Loop. you know what? There, listen, uh, Ryan. Uh, Ryan was apologizing earlier. There is nothing wrong with shameless pop. There is. <laughs> I I want to sit down and listen to John Coltrane, "A Love Supreme," and that's probably an album I've listened to more than anything. And then sometimes, yeah, I just throw in something that is super catchy because you just need that fun that of that release. That's great. So, yeah, yeah. Um, getting back to Ryan's question, Kevin, uh, was there is there a song that defines both of these eras for you? Gosh, uh, I got a little emotional thinking about it, surprisingly. Um, is a song I heard really, really early on as a young man uh, in the mid 80s, uh, for what it's worth, which was, um, it was a HBO documentary uh, in the mid 80s called Letters Home from Vietnam that were actual letters written by soldiers who, some of, many of whom had come home, one or two of them who hadn't, and they were being read by actors. Like, I remember it was like Michael J. Fox, it was like, you know, that the actors of the 80s reading these uh, letters home and giving them a bit of drama while all these images of soldiers played in the background. For, certainly Fortunate Son was one that I remember hearing mm -hmm. in that moment that jumped out at me. Um, and then of course you would see it in every Vietnam movie. Uh, but for me, what, it, for what it's worth was a song that is just as poignant and as good today as it was back then. I mean, a lot of the reason why you don't hear protest songs is all the great ones, a lot of the great ones were already written. Why try to redo something that's already good? Mm -hmm. um, but that's a song that uh, was heavy in rotation, I feel, in terms of protest music in the mid 60s. 
Buffalo Springfield was really trying to point out something that was happening. And, and remember Buffalo Springfield. So this is 66, 67. This is before, uh, this is before Neil Young went solo. This is before Steven Steele's before started Ted. Crosby, Stills and Nash. This is before Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young. So this was really early on. Um, I think probably during the beginning of the draft is when a lot of these songs were starting to be written because these musicians were seeing their friends go off and some of them not come back. Um, and that song was used in a West Wing episode of, of all the shows in the world. Uh, the West Wing kind of did a teleplay about 9-11 without saying September 11th, without saying New York, without saying certain things. They did a teleplay to try to describe to people what was happening. And the whole premise of the show was there was a group of students touring the White House. The White House um, had, a, had a code read and they had a lockdown. So the staff were talking to these students about what is Islam? What is Islamic extremists? Why they are different? Uh, and they were trying to educate these kids as to what's really going on. Why, why did this attack happen? Why are we going, why are we starting a war? And it was all these different opinions. And underneath that, there was a subplot of a, a staffer at the White House was, was um, on a list that he was suspected to be a terrorist. It turned out that it wasn't the case at all. But you saw this confrontation with that guy at the end of the show with one of the lead characters and their understanding about you're Muslim, I'm not, and the differences between the two. And as the camera panned out, you started to hear that guitar part, that opening guitar part for what it's worth. And it really hit it home that like, we're seeing the same kind of ripple effects from wars from the 60s and, and we're kind of starting to see the same divisions now in 2001 that we were seeing back then. So that's a song that has stayed with me throughout the years. I'll have to echo you Unfortunate Son. I think that's probably one of the more popular ones. I, I actually even listened to it right before we started recording just because it's like, as soon as you hear that, it, 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 it brings up images because I think of all the movies that it has, has been a part of and the images that it has been ingrained with uh, in, in pop culture. Um, it's hard for me to bring, to think of any current song or band, uh, you know, maybe you two, um, uh, you know, different, like I remember specifically like when they played for the Super Bowl and they ran all the names of all the victims of September 11th behind them yeah. um, to Streets Have No Name. Was it? It was a really powerful moment. It was, uh, it was, they were doing, um, they were doing some kind of instrumental piece that I don't recognize. I, to, I can't, I actually watched it not too long ago and I, I can't remember what part it was, but then you could hear those opening chords to the song. Uh, and yeah, they started playing Where the Streets Have No Names. And at the end, uh, uh, Bono opened his jacket and the American flag was in the, the middle because that that attack was so fresh it was so new it was so shocking mm -hmm. that you're just watching civilians die right in front of you and so i think in it, the initial response was just to for the nation to just wrap their arms around the people that were affected and show love and support and that was i mean america's been very good to you too so that was their like love letter back to the states you know mm -hmm. i i often think of joshua tree as an american album that the, the guitar sound of edges guitar was everywhere in the mid eighties. It was that and Eddie Van Halen. Those are like the two guitar sounds I hear instantly when I think of the mid eighties. And yeah, they, they've done very well in the United States um, and they just wanted to show that support to everybody, so. You know, that's interesting that Kevin identifies with that guitar uh, comment that he had made. And I think that uh, the most identifiable character of the sixties, particularly with the guitar is Jimi Hendrix. 
who was in fact a, uh, he served, he didn't serve overseas. He was uh, in the United States and Germany. And that's where he learned, that's where he began to play some of his music, of course. And 101st Airborne. He was 101st screaming, Airborne, correct. Yeah, Screaming Eagle all the way. Eagle. He didn't, he didn't serve in Vietnam. No. no. Mm, interesting. Not. I watched a documentary the other day that, that said that fact that he served, but they showed images of people in Vietnam, which made me think he was in Vietnam. No, he That's... served in Germany. He played a lot of the uh, enlisted man's clubs. And it, it, actually, there's some uh, music, uh, you know, ever since Hendrix died, they continue to bring out some of the outtakes and things like that. But some of his yeah. music, he was a background player. But no, he did not serve in country, uh, but he did serve in 101st Airborne. And uh, others did do Archie Bell and the drills, tighten up. And he was a Vietnam veteran as well. But what was more important, I think, with Hendrix was the fact that his music was rebellious by sound. I mean, it just yeah. boom, came out at you. And uh, many uh, uh, veterans who were more of the, would you say, the psychedelic era? A lot, I, I served with most of my guys were from the West Coast. I was one of the East Coast guys. And uh, they were all from San Francisco of that era. Okay, they were going to like the Whiskey A Go Go in LA and seeing all these groups of doors, where in fact uh, Jimmy Morrison's father was my commanding officer. And uh, he's a captain at that time in the United States Navy. We were going training out in Guam, and he was our CEO. And, uh, you know, that's when uh, the doors were doing a lot of their music, which I didn't really touch on in my information to you, Sean, but the doors was. Uh, uh, another group that was identified in the 60s along, you know, along with that Vietnam era. As you've seen some of the movies like Apocalypse Now, Deer Hunter, and some of the others, uh, that background music was very, very strong. Very strong. Yeah. And, and I didn't see that in watching uh, uh, the, like the movies of uh, post 9-11 Afghanistan and such. I didn't see that relating music as strong as it was, we'll just use Apocalypse Now. When they use uh, Wagner's uh, Valkyrie, Flight of the you know, Valkyrie come out of those helicopters. And that, that's hard. So that's some hard hitting stuff. I didn't mm -hmm. see that in the current movies. Well, a lot of the current movies, and we did a, a movie post 9-11 war movie episode of The Scuttlebutt some time ago, if our audience wants to go back and, and listen to that. Also, we need, listen to to Ryan, we need to do another one, but yeah. particularly listen for Ryan All's critique of Hurt Locker. But if you look at like, you know, Lone Survivor, Hurt Locker, American Sniper, Sandbox, um, uh, the Outpost, which is a recent uh, Netflix movie, um, even watching a lot of these movies, I, there's not a particular sound that I get from from any one of them, like Flight of the Valkyries or uh, Credence. Or you know, there's not there's there's not that association that I get watching the newer movies. Even with Forrest Gump, which is a, mm -hmm. uh, you know, a very well done film, overshone, but it's a well done movie, and that, that music back there is very telling, uh, and it kind of evolves with the eras of uh, for young man of Forrest Gump mm -hmm. and his service, of course. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm uh, dating myself, of course, and, and looking back at some of those tunes, but uh, many of us uh, veterans, you know, we're listening to Creedence Clearwater a lot, and some of the old news stations and things kind of play up to that, but I'm just not hearing that identity in the Afghanistan-Iraqi wars, and I think well, we're just a different country, of course, and we're mm -hmm. a different society. We didn't have Spotify. We didn't have the headphones with the walk, not walk band, but uh, the I, uh, iPhones and all this other stuff back in the day. We were on AM, FM radio, okay? Mm -hmm. And it was AFN, okay? There was a particularly female disc jockey, uh, Chris Knoll, who was everybody's sweetheart, okay? And she just played mm -hmm. kind of this bubblegum type music and she was an American voice and everybody wanted to hear that. And then all of a sudden, this was in the early, early on, but then 
when the 70s start kicking in, you're starting to hear protest songs, okay? And uh, Buffalo Springfield and Jimi Hendrix and all these others. And opening your mind is probably not how I want to define that, but there is something to be said for that because uh, music was such a big part of our, our off time uh, back then. There's two questions I have. Um, one is, uh, they're both for Don, uh, but one, one's for Ryan here, is um, first, Jimi Hendrix playing the national anthem. Uh, how did that make you feel? But the second question for both of you is the protest, uh, war protest music, how does, how does that music make you feel? And how did it make you feel back then? I'll address that. Number one, with Jimi Hendrix doing the uh, Star Spangled Banner that way, I was not repulsed by that. Some were, okay, because it was, we always wanted it to be the traditional uh, rendition of the national anthem. With Hendrix kicking it out like he did, it was almost, uh, oh man, I know it was a wake-up call for the people of Woodstock, but it might have been a wake-up call for the change in America at this time, okay? I was, as a veteran, I'm not repulsed by that, okay? The protest music, again, it wasn't repulsive to me. I didn't ignore it, uh, particularly with uh, Four Dead in Ohio, because that was my time frame. We were in Laos at that time, and that's what they were protesting about, the, going into camp, well, actually Cambodia, going into Cambodia at that time, Nixon's expansion of the war, and remembering the fact that uh, Alison Krauss was nearby in Murraysville, Pennsylvania. So that was a, a student that was just changing classes, had nothing to do with the protests, nothing to do with uh, uh, the disruption on Kent State campus the, the other days. She was just in the wrong place at the wrong time, got killed. And that really stands with me to the point where every May 4th, uh, I post on my Facebook page that song, Four Dead in Ohio, just to, uh, as a remembrance. Mm-hmm. Ryan, how, have you ever felt a, a response to, to protest music? Like from the sixties or, or uh, I think with both, I, you know, I, you know, there's, yeah, they were protesting the Vietnam war back then, but in a way it's also just war protesting war in general. Um, and you know, any of the, you know, sort of maybe anti-war music yeah. that has come out recently. Um, well, I think, um, that is important, right? I think that one of the most important things that we have to realize as, as service members is one of the things that we're protecting is, you know, a person's right as an American to express themselves and that, our strength um, as a country in a lot of ways comes from our ability to peacefully dissent. Um, and that is something which should, you know, always be preserved. And so uh, on a personal level, no, it's, it's never really bothered me. I think music um, is such a fantastic way to express, um, to, ex- to express movements or ideas. Um, and it's, it, it's helpful. It, it can, it can help heal. It can help people process uh, trauma. Um, as I was sitting here listening to, to Kevin and, and Don, um, I was I was thinking about a, a song that really meant a lot to me um, when I was when I was coming home, and and I don't know why it's not a hugely popular song, but it was by Audio Slave and Chris Cornell, and it's called "I Am the Highway." And I don't know, yeah, Kevin may be familiar with it. It's kind of it's not a very popular song, but I love that album. And there's a line in it where it talks about you know I put a million miles beneath my feet but still too close to you i feel um and it made me think about like the war and you know how it's kind of always with you and uh on a deeper sense like i am the highway like what does that mean it's a very very touching song and it really stuck with me for a long time and still now every time i i hear that song i think about coming home and that what that process was like so yeah i mean i think i i think music's great 
<laughs> if you get anything from this podcast, music is great. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, the music has evolved. It's, it's really, you know, Kevin, as a, as a dork, I want to use the word historian, looking mm -hmm. at music through the decades. Uh, how do you see music changing over the next 10 years? Uh, since Vietnam, I think music has got more, not maybe, how can I say this? They were, it's been more commentary. You know, I, I think a lot of uh, the mid seventies, by the early to mid seventies, quote unquote, protest music or, you know, anti-war music was, I, it sounds kind of sad to say, but from an artistic level, it was kind of almost out of fashion, but also, too, there were people still doing it, I, I think, in a lovely and artistic way. I, brought, I put Jackson Brown's um, Late for the Sky album in that list of uh, songs that I think should be mentioned about Vietnam because it kind of describes the this, this slow burn that happened after the idyllic 50s going through all the turmoil of the 60s. And now we're into the 70s. And now all these college students are, you know, they're, they're get married and having kids of their own and having to make decisions about how they want to live their lives. There's a really great line from Jackson Brown's The Pretender. Uh, Ryan just talking now made me think of it, um, how a song kind of triggers this memory. There's a line from The Pretender, well, the veterans dream of the fight fast asleep at the traffic light. It's just like how they might have this moment in their day where they stop and their mind just is suddenly sent somewhere else. And, and meanwhile, they're back home. They're not in country anymore. And Gosh, I don't know. It's, you know, how will it evolve? I mean, technology and how we how we consume music is going to have a lot to do with that. Mm -hmm. I, I feel that there's not as much attention to detail um, going into the kind of music that's put out now, unless you have, unless you're an REM or a Pearl Jam or a Dr. Dre and you've built your own studio and you have all the time in the world to really focus an album. I feel a lot of music is being put out rather quickly of course, with the technology that we have, the four of us could record an album in the next five days at home just using stuff and just put it out there. What would we you call know? our band? I don't know, but it, it would probably be a train wreck and interesting <laughs> to listen to. Uh, or it could be great. You never know. The name of the, um, that's the name of the album, Train Wreck. Train wreck. <laughs> Something yeah. you don't want to listen to. Gosh. Uh, May I throw this out uh, to the guys? The influence of rap music now is very, very prevalent. There's a, there's a message there, okay? And I, I don't hear the message of protest in, uh, trust me, I listen to very little rap, but just because of the fact that it's not my genre, but I do listen to things that are newer. And I'm trying to find that art form and get my arms around it. I don't hear um, uh, the statements that we heard back in the 70s, for example, with the Buffalo Springfield or, or even Jimi Hendrix or others. You know, it's just, it's just, it's just not resonating with me. Am I wrong because I'm an old guy or is there something that's uh, out there that I should be seeing? I mean, with what little I know about hip hop, my, my favorite hip hop arguably is uh, the late eighties, early nineties, kind of like um, beat poet, my coffee shop hit hip hop is what I, joke, I jokingly call it. Like the tribe called quest and the De La Soul. Like to me, those guys were the cool guys reading all the cool books and hanging out at the cool places and they had their parents jazz records at home and, and then just started writing songs over the top but a lot of the the social commentary that i was familiar with back then was them talking about their own lives their own neighborhoods police violence i don't 
I, I, I'm sure that someone is watching right now and they could probably list a half a dozen songs that would comment on the way this country was being run in terms of wars and politics back in the 80s and the 90s. And I'm sure there's stuff being put out today. I'm just not familiar with it because um, I'm starting to get to that age where I'm, ex I'm exploring less and less and I keep going back to try to hear stuff I haven't heard. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm sure there is, Don. I just don't know what it would be, you know. Um, I couldn't say either, personally. Ryan? As far as, like, hip-hop and comment on... so I think the, the whole genre of hip-hop and, and what became rap is a, is a commentary on, on social issues, right? I mean, they, with one of the biggest ones being, you know, like NWA, Eazy-E and Ice Cube and Dr. Dre, um, Notorious B.I.G., Tupac. I mean, there are so many, like, just songs that most people know um, uh, you know, but just in the same way that that um, Don can listen to music from the 60s or, or we can listen to, to other music that has a direct reflection, you know, on or impact on our lives and it triggers feelings in us. I think that, um, you know, those that, that music probably has a much bigger impact on on the, the communities which it's representing, um, both on a, on a personal and, a, you know, on an emotional level as well. Yeah. With our, our last few minutes here. Dare I, dare I ask, favorite guitarist? If you have a favorite guitarist. I, I or Antonio Carlos Jobim. Mm, excellent choice. Excellent choice. And I don't know that name. What, can you say it again? <laughs> Antonio Carlos Jobim, who is a Brazilian, I believe, uh, did a lot of the Bossa Nova sounds. And if yeah. you pick up Frank Sinatra with Antonio Carlos Jobim, and the, probably the signature tune is The Girl from Ipanema. Yeah, really talented guitar player. God, favorite guitar player? That's impossible. I, I mean, knew that was gonna maybe stump you, Kevin, because okay, like so. I'll just <laughs> I'll run through a, a quick like you know so like, the it's first, a top five that you can give us, just like with the Ryan. Fir the, the first one will always be Eddie Van Halen. It will always be Eddie Van Halen. That was the Diver Down was the first rock record I got when I was six or seven from my aunt for Christmas. Um, Peter Buck from REM. Uh, was a, a really big influence guitar-wise. I'm probably, by the way, later I'm going to listen to this and yell at myself for listing, not listing a bunch of guitar players. Uh, Neil Young, the mm -hmm. sound of his guitar, his that black uh, mid-50s, uh, he's got this black mid-50s Gibson that just, it's it's like a, it's literally like a storm coming down a valley coming at you. It's like a train. It's Sonically, it's one of the most powerful sounds I've ever heard uh god uh two more two more here we go uh focus focus i can't i mean i, I mike mccready from uh pearl jam uh gosh there's so many uh, then there's like a bunch of guitar players who i could list right now from bands that no one's ever heard of that i think are really great i gotta agree in a similar note to don my if i could tomorrow just wake up and have the talent of a guitar player uh it would be a a flamenco guitar player um uh oh my god and now i'm having a senior moment where i'm going up on his name why don't you go back to uh ryan i have to uh try to remember here uh the one guitar player's name so right that, that was that so i'll just have to say kevin that was really entertaining to watch i enjoyed <laughs> watching you struggle your way through that five uh, five guitars that was that was great and now that because you are so much more educated than me like the better question for me is can i name five guitarists like Probably not. I could name um, maybe two or three. Yeah, I would just have to say, I mean, you know, 
Jimi Hendrix for me, I guess, you know, like I, I love him. He was so impactful on me as a, as a teenager and just listening to his music was, was great. Yeah, guys, uh, I, so I, I, go ahead. Carol. I actually no, did no. remember it because uh, my head was filling up. Yeah, Ryan, it's, it's really bad. I, I'm not very, <laughs> I'm not very smart with much, but like you, you put me in a room in a corner with a guy and give us each a beer and say, go on about music. I'll, I'll be there till that's Sunday awesome day. that's so cool now the the guy that for me i don't know why it's it's not a, a style of music i listened to a lot as a kid but paco de lucia who's a flamenco guitar player um you might he's probably most popularly known in the states for being the soloist behind have you ever really loved a woman by brian adams from the the don uh, the uh, don juan de marco soundtrack that's like that was a that was a hit in, i think in the early 90s have you ever really loved a woman? And that guitar sound, the flamenco solo in the background is Paco de Lucia. And when you listen to his albums, what he's doing on that Ryan Adams album isn't even a warm up. He's an amazing guitar player. And it's just something about that sound. It's, it's just the most gorgeous freeing sound and similar to Don's taste about like bossa nova. That flamenco sound is that nylon string sound is just so beautiful to me. And it's, it's, yeah, even, I, I don't even, even pulling it back to a little bit of dated mainstream was Glenn Campbell. Okay, the way he, you know, as a lyricist, he's writing, uh, he's doing, performing a lot of, uh, was that Jimmy Young's tunes by the time I get to Phoenix and yeah. others. But uh, Glenn Campbell was an accomplished guitar player and uh, certainly a, a part of the, the late 60s in my era, of course, but uh, it was just something that stays with me as well. He transformed from country to, we'll just say pop back in those days. Uh, I'm a Wichita lineman by the time I get to Phoenix. Uh, yeah, Galveston, which was an anti, actually, a Vietnam War song, and uh, many a times that song was played uh, in the different places I was at. I'm like embarrassed to say any of mine, really, because like I, I was not a big music buff. Like, like my friend, the, the famous quote amongst my friends uh, was when we were like, you know, 15, and he was like, "Oh, I love listening to this," and I'm like, "Give me the music from Mario Brothers." Like, I don't care. <laughs> I was not really big in music, but the bands that I I was into, uh, I loved live. Um, Lightning Crashes, Ed Kowalczyk, for whatever reason, like I still listen to his albums. Um, I say slash only as kind of a joke because I can't get the image of him playing in front of the, uh, uh, the white church during November rain out of my head. Like I love he's, that riff for whatever he's reason. He's a great guitar player, man. He's a really yeah. good guitar player. Um, recently, go ahead. I can add just before we close, B.B. King, the king of the blues, mm. uh, who had Lucille uh, is very defining uh, sound that B.B. King had and probably the most recognized blues player uh, of our time. Oh my God, Prince! I completely from yeah. Sorry, he's in the top five. Prince is Prince, definitely yes. in the top five. Yeah, yeah. Prince yeah. definitely. Um, and I would probably have to say that uh, a recent song that I've really loved is Gregory Allen Isakoff with the uh, the Stable Song. I just that I hear that that sound. And one album that I listened to constantly was Dave and Dave and Tim live at Radio City, uh, playing some of Dave's music. Tim Reynolds just like listening to his the way he plays has been like I don't know that gets my blood going. Um, so some some different picks I think. <laughs> I feel you though, Sean. It is like it's intimidating to to name a, a guitarist in front of these two because yeah. these Don and Kevin here are very knowledgeable, and I feel like 
you know, if, uh, I feel like I'm going to say something that's incorrect. And they're going to be like, oh, look at this guy. I should stress, too, that I don't even play guitar. I'm actually a drummer. So God help you if you ask that. Well, actually, I'd probably have a top five easier for drummers. Uh, always uh, <laughs> within an arm's reach as opposed to searching for guitar players. OK, if I held your feet to the fire, Kev, one one drummer. Uh, it's a tie for first place. It's always going to be Keith and Ringo. Keith Moon of The Who with The Who is my favorite band. And Ringo, they were the first two that when I was a teenager that I watched the most to maybe think, I think I could, let me sit behind this drum kit and see. Because I got the guitar and I have the hands to play all the expensive chords, but I just could never, I don't know why I could never do it. But as soon as I sat behind the drums, I started playing. So Keith and Ringo are always the two very different drummers, very different styles. But yeah, from two of my favorite bands, that, that's going to be would, number one. Kevin, would Ginger Baker of the Cream uh, fit into any of that top three or four? He's unfortunately, he's in like maybe the top 20. He's definitely, he's, he's up there. And my appreciation for him came later in life. I was never that guy that like people say, oh, Bonham and Neil Peart. And I was like, yes, but not when you first start playing because you hear them and you want to quit because you just see how far you have to go. You know, mm -hmm. for me, it was like, it was Keith and Ringo. It was Stuart Copeland of the police. It was, you know, uh, Topper Hidden, The Clash was a huge influence. And uh, probably the next one would be, Goodness, uh, Pete Thomas of Elvis Costello and the Attractions. Um, really, really great drummers. Uh, and they all have this very, very strong live sound. That's what attracts me most to musicians. Mm -hmm. If they have a good studio album, that's great. But if I hear your live album and you absolutely kill, then there's a good chance I'll become a fan of you. I know, nice. throwing that old school, but Buddy Rich is one. Oh, God, yeah. Well, by the way, this is just my top five rock drummers. We haven't even gotten to jazz. Or, you know. <laughs> We're going to have to do a whole nother scuttlebutt on that. Um, but uh, for the sake of time, and I want to thank you guys so much for, for having this conversation with us. Um, I think we could definitely do a part two of this and talk more, uh, maybe even more in depth. Um, or we'll just, you know, do an offshoot of the scuttlebutt and let you, uh, Don and Kevin, just go at it. Uh, I think that would be excellent. But as our audience, make sure you like, share, subscribe, comment, and ring the bell. Uh, we'd love to have you come back for uh, more episodes of The Scuttlebutt. Rate us wherever you get your podcasts. Um, I want to thank my guests here today and my co-host, Ryan. Uh, thanks, guys. This has been awesomely educational. Uh, I love sitting down with with savants of, of different genres, different uh, things and music, and just learning. And just, you know, different sounds that I've been able to listen to leading up to this episode has really been great. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thank you for having me today. Thank you again, everyone, for joining us for another episode of The Scuttlebutt. I want to thank D&D &D Metal Recycling and Auto Salvage for their generous support and sponsorship of this program. You can find their locations, get quotes, and ask about availability at dandautosalvage.com. That's dandautosalvage.com. We'll see you next week here on The Scuttlebutt.